Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast. We started this podcast a few years ago to help improve knowledge around SEND. There is lots of stuff to read, but we're all extremely busy. The phrase, every teacher is a teacher of SEND, is currently an ideal, not a reality. We created the Sendcast to try and help solve that problem, to help make schools more inclusive and to help teachers be teachers of SEND. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same information to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, I have a different guest on that has come to talk about a topic they are passionate about. And this week we're discussing theories on the physical aspects of autism and the implications. My guest this week is Rachel Jackson. Rachel is an author and parent of two boys, one with a diagnosis of autism and ADHD. Before we get started, I would like to remind you about B Squared. Over the last 25 years, we have supported schools to support students with SEND. Our assessment products are used in over 10,000 schools around the world to help show small steps of progress. With around 1,500 of those using Connecting Steps, our assessment software. Our evidence system, Eversense, helps schools capture and share the achievements their pupils are making. And our online CPD offering, Trainer for Education, started two years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. If you want to find out more about B Squared and how we can help your school, go to our website, www.bsquared.co.uk. There's lots of information you can go and read and blogs and webinars, and you can go book an online meeting to find out how we can support you. Or if you prefer, you can drop me an email. My email address is simply dale at bsquared.co.uk. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing theories on the physical aspect of autism and the implications for individuals with autism. Joining me today is Rachel Jackson. Rachel is a parent of two boys, one who has a diagnosis of autism and ADHD. She is an author writing three short books for children around autism and their siblings. And she has also written for a number of magazines. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you very much, Dale. Nice to be here. When people talk about autism and the different aspects of autism, we often talk about the psychological and behavioural aspects, but there can be also physiological aspects, can't there? Absolutely. And the more that having gone through the journey of trying to understand and support my son, you end up finding out all kinds of things that you never thought had anything to do with autism at all. The the first thing I think most parents of children with autism explore is the sensory side of things because they'll have a child who Leo will cut the labels out of all of his clothing. Actually, I say that he used to only wear clothing that had those little silky labels in the side. They were he'd fiddle with them when he was anxious. So he wouldn't wear anything that didn't have a label. And then all of a sudden overnight, the labels were all wrong and we had to cut them all out. And then he'd put them on and go, this hasn't got a label. I can't wear this. And they were like, "Okay." So there was clearly something really important for him about that sensory experience. It also impacts us from a sensory perspective when he's eating. So food is a huge sensory experience, both in terms of we tend to think of food in terms of tastes and flavors. He thinks of food in terms of the feeling inside his mouth. So he will shove far too much food into his mouth because he likes the feeling of a full on packed jaw. And it's awful eating with him because you think of it as bad manners, but for him, it's a sensory experience. We often solve behavioral issues by giving him a carrot or something crunchy that occupies that part of his body 
so that it reduces the sensations in the rest of his body. So a sensory experience, and, and we talk about when we talk about sensory, there's two different sides to sensory. There's sensory seeking and there's sensory avoiding. So he will seek out, he would literally walk down a corridor and he would bump somebody as he walked past them for no apparent reason. He would put his hand out so that he bumped their leg as he went past. And again, that's a sensory experience that reduces tension in his body. At school, they will often do what they call big movement, big muscle movement. He needs to push something heavy. He needs to hang. He needs to climb. He needs to do something that occupies his big muscles in his body because actually there's tension in them. And I suppose I'd liken it to those nights when you try and go to bed and your legs won't relax. It's that same feeling that he he feels that energy and tension in his body and he needs to dissipate it somehow. And that can be, as I say, food, labels, touching things, bouncing off things, face planting on the sofa. He will literally face plant straight on our sofa, face down. And it's uncomfortable to watch because it's probably the most obvious element of his autism for us. So sensory was the first thing that I started exploring that was physiological for him. And that really kind of got me going. And it's good when sensory, people sort of think about Oh, it's the, um, they lack the senses. They need this deep tissue because they don't feel. And it's not that they're not feeling, it's they enjoy, they're seeking that extreme feeling. Absolutely. And, and actually understanding it in the terms that, I, that make sense to me. You know when you've done a workout and you can feel the, the lactic acid still in your muscles? It's uncomfortable. It, it feels just marginally uncomfortable, but it's not painful. It's just conscious. And actually, if you, if you massage that, the tension goes. And I think that's what the experience must be like for him. He, he will climb in underneath the sofa cushions and ask us to sit on the sofa cushions on top of him. And that deep pressure can really help him relax. So he's mixed in the sense that sometimes he's sensory seeking, sometimes he's sensory avoiding. So he will occasionally wear headphones to block out the noises around him. Sometimes he'll not want to block out the noises around him and he'll talk to me about, you don't realise, I can hear all of the birds that are singing over there and, and I can hear absolutely everything. And, and when I listen to music, I can hear the piano and I can hear the drums and I can hear that guitar and I can hear the other guitar, and I can hear the person shuffling around, and I can hear everything. And that's an intense sensory experience for him, that if somebody starts talking in the middle of it, it's like, <laughs> it, it, it's just really uncomfortable for him. So there's definitely, it's almost like if you've got a mixing board, it's turned up too high or turned down too low, and they're constantly tweaking to get it just right. And not, normally we can filter out. So I'm, I'm, we're recording this podcast. I'm focusing on you. There might be noises in the background, but my head is automatically, without even me asking you to do it, is going, you're focusing on this. So let's reduce everything else down. Let's boost the podcast information and we'll do that. And a lot of time it's that's where they do struggle. It's, is that filtering? Absolutely. And, and he is continually distracted by small noises, by physical sensations. And that's, that's the second thing that I really got into. We've always noticed that Leo's behavior is far more extreme when he's cold, when he's hungry, when he has got a tummy ache, when he needs to go to the toilet, when he's got something physical going on inside him. And the term for that is interreception. And it's basically the, the sensation of your own bodily functions and your own bodily 
experiences. We've got sense, we've got sensory nodes all over our body, and they seem to be more uh, or less able to filter that sensory information out, so that it causes distraction and disruption to normal functioning. And that sense of interoception has always been a really, really important thing for us to manage with Leo. If his behaviour is uncomfortable, it's often because he's uncomfortable physically. And actually, lots of people talk about that in, in emotional terms as well. So the sensation of being anxious or the sensation of being excited is really uncomfortable for him. And we've had to explain to him when we're watching movies, we explain that a good movie is designed to make your emotions go up and down. And there's generally a crescendo towards the end of emotional content that you're supposed to feel on the inside because he would feel those emotions, but he couldn't understand that they were coming from the film. So he would think they were his and that he needed to do something with them. And he would literally be jumping around by the end of the movie, trying to get that emotion out of himself without recognizing that that's the way the filmmaker has designed him to feel and that that's normal and it's okay. And it's coming from the film. Wow. That's, that's interesting. It's really fascinating, isn't it? That disconnect that you, you're watching this, it's obviously subconsciously making you feel this, but you're consciously completely unaware of that impact. Yeah, he can feel it, but he doesn't, he doesn't can't interpret where it's coming from. It's the same with music. If he listens to music that, that creates emotion in him, there's no sense that the music and the emotion are separate. They're the same and they're his and he's got to deal with them. So whilst we might listen to music for the emotion that it, it creates in us, for him, there's no separation between those two. They're all at one merged mess of sensory experience that can be overwhelming. And he wouldn't know that taking his headphones off and not listening to it anymore would make those emotions potentially go away. Yes, because he, he feels they're inside of him. He would generally get incredibly distracted before uh, on a Friday at about 11 o'clock at school was the general time for a peak of behavioural issues when he was in mainstream. And when we went to the school, what we found was is that the class that he sat in was next to the kitchens and it was fish and chip day. So the whole area smelled to fish and chips. And he could not separate himself from that sensory experience enough to be able to focus on school. And yeah, we all get distracted by nice smells when food's cooking, but not to the point where it's a physical discomfort that he couldn't, he couldn't get rid of it in any way. It's, 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 it literally is like having a hand in front of your eyes when you're trying to read a book type level. It's not a case of I can smell it. It's literally like it is overruling all my other senses. I cannot filter it out and go, oh, that smells nice. Back to what I was doing. It's like it is there and I can't do anything about that until it's gone. Absolutely. My, my nephew with autism, he, as he, he struggles. He can't feel if he's hot or cold. That's a common one. So he'll be in school. He'll be bright red. He'll look really flustered. And he'll be getting more and more uncomfortable. He'll get headaches. But he'll never think, if I take my jump, <laughs> I'll feel better. Yeah. Yeah. And my sister, for years, wrote, he's come back home with a headache and he's hot. You need to make sure you notice and you say, are you hot? You should take jump. And he'll take it off and go, oh. Yeah. But he never learned. Sort of thing, you know, you, you walk into something, you headbutt something, you go, oh, best duck as I go through this door. You learn. No, it doesn't work like that because that means you've noticed it and then you react. But it's more like you walk into this door frame, you headbutt it. You haven't noticed you've headbutt it. You're going, why is my head hurting? I don't know where that's come from. 
Have you seen that really funny clip with the with the person with the nail in their forehead, and and it's a woman sitting there going, "I've just got this headache all the time," and the husband's going, "Got a nail in your head," but she's not listening because she's going, "I just I don't know where it's coming from. I can just it's like a piercing pain," and and it's the same for for Leo with autism. He just doesn't. He knows that it's happening, but he can't work out why. And I think that's why lots and lots of parents. This is just a theory. Lots and lots of parents struggle with potty training their autistic children because certainly with Leo, he wouldn't be aware that he needed to go to the toilet, or he'd be vaguely aware of discomfort, but he wouldn't equate it to the need to go to the toilet. So he would go for ages needing to do a poo, for example, and feeling that discomfort without really registering, unless you said to him, "Leo, do you need a poo?" And he'd go, "Yeah, I do." And he'd go and do it. No issue at all. But he wouldn't make that connection usefully for himself to do something about it. He'd, he'd sit in a bowl of hot water, I'm convinced of it, without realising. It's, it's like the standard frog argument about boiling a frog. He would literally sit there and, and not really register that something needed to happen. No. And probably then he would start feeling the pain, but not think, get out. Like I said, he's he's largely barefoot and he will walk across anything barefoot. He will walk across mud. He will walk across prickles. He will walk across anything. And and to some degree, he likes that sensation. He he is renowned for liking walking across pebbles. But when it comes to pain, he will literally come in with blood all over his foot. And you'll say, Leo, you've got blood all over your foot. And he'll go, oh, yeah, I might have stood on something. And he's just not registered it. It's just irrelevant. And then he'll panic about it. <laughs> My mum many years ago told me of a story of a child who one day just came into school and was just crawling across the floor, refused to stand. They were in the next day, fine. And no one could work it out. They just would just crawl everywhere. And the child had broken their leg. They didn't know they'd broken their leg. They didn't feel the pain. They just knew they couldn't stand on it, so didn't but didn't feel the need to tell anyone. And it's this whole strange thing of they didn't feel the pain. They didn't. And it was just like, how do you not? And it's, but that's, that's the thing. They didn't. And you just got to accept that and not work out the reasons or anything. It's kind of accept it and go, okay, so now we've now got to put adaptations in and support them because that could be even worse. It might be they jumped off something and just landed and went, oh, I can't stand up now. I guess I'll crawl. And they might do it again. It's so illogical. And when we we did do a sensory assessment for Leo, which is actually quite hard to get, get done unless you do it privately. But he was avoidant for some things and seeking for other things. And then they would switch in the other, the other sensory mode. And you were just like, that doesn't make sense. So what you're telling me is that he, he finds labels on his clothes scratchy. But at the same time, we'll run across a, a gravel path with prickles on it without noticing. How, how does that compute? And equally, he will he will knock himself at school and they'll say, oh, do you want to put an ice pack on that? And he's like, no, why would I want to put an ice pack on it? I'm going to go and play. But is that a control thing? Because he's running across the things and the label, it's not him label, it's the label which is irritating him. There are, there are lots of children with autism who don't like being touched. You mentioned that he will bang into someone as he walks down the corridor. A lot of children will literally avoid making contact. And I know schools who do adaptations where um, pupils change lessons early. So they leave that one lesson early to arrive at the next lesson. 
so they can walk through the quiet, empty corridors instead of bumping into people. He's, we, we had a child, I think the first reason that we actually went for any diagnosis with Leo is that if you put him on a bouncy castle, he could clear it in minutes because he would bounce into people. He would literally just bounce around into people like a, like a bowling ball all over the place and, and without saying anything. They wasn't like, oh, sorry. It was, that was part of his experience and other people didn't appreciate it quite so much. So they would literally leave the bouncy castle and, and he would be confused as to why they'd left because that was part of his fun. That was what bouncy castles were for. Yeah, it's, it's about bouncing and big impact. It's what you go on there for. But not understanding you should only bounce on the hard, on the soft things, not the hard. And it's interesting because it's led me down. A lot of this stuff is about understanding what kind of cognitive load my child is under. And, and my visible understanding of his cognitive load is whether he's stressed, whether he's trying to do something difficult, whether he's tired, all of those kinds of things. And it's easy as a parent to discount the fact that he's got a scratchy label, that one of his toes feels strange, that his muscles might feel odd, that not, he might be experiencing something into, inside that I'm not aware of that is increasing his cognitive load. So when he flips his lid, it could have loads and loads of precursors that I haven't even noticed. So you have to kind of get a different level of awareness of what's going on. So you literally you can't go through when he when he has that instant can't go well, what happened in the classroom in the ten minutes before that. It literally might be he's hungry, he's feeling hot, he's feeling cold, or he's hurt. He's, it could be anything. Or equally, laughably, it could be that it's windy outside. Or I actually have an app on my phone that tells me the moon cycles. And often when we're going through a period of really bizarrely extreme behaviours, I'll look on my phone and I'll be like, uh, why did I forget it's full moon? I've heard this. <laughs> if you ask anyone in SEN, anyone in teaching, anyone in prisons, anyone in any of those intense situations, they will all tell you the word lunacy is not an accident. Luna affects us. Um, and the lunar cycles are strong enough that they create tides globally, yeah? We are made of water, so it's ludicrous to think that it wouldn't affect us. And all teachers will tell you that their, um, their behaviour of their kids around a lunar cycle is much, much more extreme. Um, prisons will tell you, police will tell you that there are more crimes committed around a lunar cycle, all kinds of things like that. Um, so it does take you into slightly bizarre territory in exploring autism. Um, but most mums, if you say, oh, it's full moon, they'll go, oh, God, I yeah, I dread full moon. Yeah, it is something I've heard a few times. And you kind of go, oh, it's got to be bonkers. It's got to be bonkers. But it's sort of like... In anecdotal no, terms, it's totally You hear isn't. it <laughs> so often. I don't believe in star signs, um, but I do believe in the lunar cycle and SEN. And I was, I was watching some program or as a clip or something and it says not only do does the water move with the lunar cycle but i think it was saying that the whole of um new york moves up and oh, wow down yeah wouldn't surprise me with the uh, lunar cycle they do they do say that if you move fish that that traditionally spawn on a full moon if you move them inland to an inland lake they will still spawn at the time that the full moon happens in that space so they still feel that same lunar pull it's got it's not tidal it's lunar there was an an article i was re reading on reddit which i and it was about um somebody's study on bees and understanding time 
So they did something every time at a set time. And they're like, and the bees would go and expect it. And they're like, oh, it's because of the position of the sun. Okay, so let's do it. And they did all these things and they kept going. And in the end, what they had to do is they did something at 10 a.m. one day, put all the bees on a plane, flew to the southern hemisphere to Australia, from America to Australia type thing. And the exact time, so the difference, so instead of being 10 a.m. in the morning, now 10 p.m. at night, but the bees came out at the exact time. They was like, how can you work that out? How I, I love these things where we think we know everything and then we find out something fascinating. I've got a friend of mine in Italy who's a beekeeper and she has all kinds of worries at the moment because she she knows that whatever we say about bees being able to find their way back to the hive, if you move a beehive two foot to the left, the bees will lose the hive quite easily. They are very, they're very, they're sort of GPS level in, in terms of navigation. And she said, I'm losing lots of bees. I haven't moved my hives at all. But my suspicion is that it's impacted by um, radio waves and the increase in radio waves from mobile phones and all of the other technology that we have that is actually impacting on the environment that they are flying through. And it's impacting on their GPS uh, systems in their heads. Um, and it's causing us to lose bees. Just, they literally don't make it home. And it's not illness. It's not disease in the hive. It's not movement of hive. It's just they can't navigate the complexity of radio waves. So who knows whether that's impacting our, our autism environment as well? It is. It's, yeah, but I think the moon, and because um, one thing I was reading, it was about ADHD and migraines and the sensitivity to um, barometric pressure. Yes, that's another one. If, if the pressure's changing, that makes a big difference as well. Yeah, and they, they, and they feel it. And you can kind of, you know, even because oh, it's a bit muggy today, or it's a thunder, you can kind of feel certain things. Yeah, you can feel that it's, it's the ions in the air, isn't it? It's positive ions as well. Um, yeah. It makes a big difference. So you can feel it, but that's you consciously noticing it. Your subconscious is probably a lot more in tune. Totally. And this is the kind of thing that you start exploring when you are exploring a child with autism and you get into all kinds of spaces. I, I was watching something just yesterday about but dopamine. Um, dopamine is a, is a neural transmitter, I'm sure you're aware, that is released in, in response to something that we're enjoying. It's a, it's a pleasure kind of neurotransmitter. Um, but they're finding now that dopamine doesn't just impact on mood and brain. It impacts on your heart function, on your kidney function, on your gut, all kinds of things. It floods through the system. Um, and dopamine increases focus. It enables you to focus on the thing that you're, that you're enjoying, that you're engaged with. And what they're finding in autism is that, that uh, autism and ADHD as well, is that those systems don't pre produce enough dopamine so that they're not creating that sense of enjoyment in the same way. They're not creating that focus in the same way. And a lot of the um, medication that they use around <clears throat> around ADHD is is rebalancing that dopamine system so that you can actually, um, so that somebody with autism or ADHD can actually feel it. Because otherwise you end up with like an intense hyper-focus that is stimulated by an, an, uh, somebody with autism to just try and stick to one um one area of focus so you get that kind of obsessive interest kind of thing but you also get very erratic behavior because that that drug is continually being disrupted it's not at high enough level to maintain that focus 
So it's continually disrupted and, and distractible. So there's all kinds of stuff about dopamine pathways that are being explored much more now around autism and ADHD and obsessive compulsive disorders and all kinds of those things. Um, because actually attached to that is if you think of the levels of anxiety that many autistic and ADHD people are experiencing in, in just living day to day, if you expose somebody to that degree of anxiety, it actually reduces the effectiveness of dopamine anyway. So there's a double whammy effect happening. So I'm I'm not a scientist. I'm, I've got a degree in psychology, but that doesn't qualify me as a scientist in any of these areas. But you read them and you think that that just makes so much sense. Um, that that the that, that chemically there's something going on in the brain with autism that we don't quite understand, and and these seem to be the outcomes of it. Um, so you kind of explore the other the the other one that's linked into that is um, we've done lots of work with Leo in terms of gut health. We had a we had a full um, I can't remember what it's called now, but a full kind of gut health check thing where they check all of the all of the various outputs of the body to understand what's happening in it. Um, and one of the things we notice is that if if Leo has eaten badly, and lots of people talk about um, having um, gluten-free and, and dairy-free diets for, for kids with autism and seeing a massive difference, we we found that trying to get him on gluten-free and dairy-free created so much food-related anxiety at the table about, can I eat this? Can I not eat this? Has this got gluten? Has this got dairy? That it kind of counteracted any benefit. But what we do notice is if he binges on bread or if he binges on sweets or if he doesn't have a healthy gut biome, um, his behavior is an awful lot worse. And we've got to the point where he will say, I need some chamomile tea, which is our natural fix. If you drink chamomile tea, it feeds the gut biome, it increases the bile in your system, it sorts it all out. So within a day or so of a, a really wobbly day, he'll drink loads of chamomile tea and we'll be back onto a normal space. So when you're talking about sort of negative behavior are you talking he gets very disruptive or are you talking he could go either way he'll often get either anxious or disruptive or what i call discombobulated it's almost like nothing's working it's it, like his thinking patterns are all gone he'll often make lots of squeaky noises he'll bump an awful lot more leo's one of those kids with autism that goes from looking and behaving beautifully normally in sort of whatever we call normal air quotes um and air <laughs> quotes there so he will he will behave in a way that you would never expect from an autistic child when everything's all in the right place the next minute you could get somebody who's bouncing around the house squeaking rolling his eyes crawling around on the floor saying he can't think clearly so when we see those behaviors a lot more we often link it to Oh, he's been really smelly lately. He's when when you're sitting next to me, you'll notice um, he's not been eating well. He's not going to the toilet the way that he would normally do. Once that settles again, he'll get back to normal health. They talk about leaky gut syndrome um, and the, the the sense that children with autism often have a more permeable relationship between gut and brain. So that the the toxins that the gut is handling leak easily into the brain, and they they talk about when when we're when we're being made as babies, the first thing that gets made is the brain. The second thing it gets made is the gut, and and we understand loads and loads and loads about the brain, but very little about the gut. 
Um, and, and they talk about the gut as the second brain. So if your gut isn't healthy, the toxins in your gut and what your body is dealing with there have a massive impact on behavior. Um, and there's loads more science happening in that space now than there ever used to be. But it, from an anecdotal parental perspective, we can see it. I mean, you can physically see a shift in him when he is gut healthy. That, that, that is fascinating because you don't really think about it. And a lot of children with autism will have a very restricted diet. They can be very fussy in their food and it, what might not be the healthiest and that is then chicken having a further chips. impact. <laughs> yeah. Chicken. I was almost said chicken nuggets and chips, but it's got to be my nephew. It's got to be uh, breadcrumb coated. It can't be better. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when we, when we go somewhere for lunch, we have to get the menu up. Chicken goujons. Yes. Batter. Nope. Next restaurant. Until we find goujons, chicken, breadcrumbs. Cool. It's on there. We are very fortunate in that Leo, has, his diet's become more restrictive as he's got older, but I think that's a taste thing rather than anything else. It's a texture and taste thing. So again, back to the sensory experience, he won't eat things. And funnily enough, if I don't like something, it's not often the taste that I dislike, it's the, it's the texture. So avocados for me, is just like, oh, I like the taste. I could eat guacamole, but if you ask me to eat a piece of avocado, it's like eating soap or something. I can't. I can't deal with that sensory experience. And I think it becomes, as you say, a, a bit of a double whammy that, um, that the diet for many autistic people is quite restrictive. It's, uh, it's quite um, beige, as I'd call it. And we're, we're lucky that that's not the case. But yes, my, my sister is going through the hell of um, he would eat his chicken goujons, he'd eat his chips, but he'd only eat it with Heinz chili ketchup. Fair enough. Fair enough. Which they've just stopped making. Oh, less fair enough. Oh, dear. Bear in mind, she used to buy nine, nine bottles at a time. Going to, <laughs> so uh, we're trying to do research every ketchup. But he, that's the thing. You sit there and go, oh, try all these. And she's like, and you go, how's it going? She went, yeah, we're not in the space for trying ketchup. And you're like, just try it, is what you say to a normal person. Just stick them in a line of diet. But no, no, no. He's got to be ready. He's got to be able to go, well, this is different. I don't know if I'll, he's got to be ready for it. And it takes you back to that whole thing about anxiety, that actually there's a, there's a control need, there's an anxiety need that says, I need to be the one that chooses and I need to be ready to do it and you need to back off. And if you don't back off, I'm not going to be anything, frankly. Um, and that, that whole space... Uh, I don't know, it must have been when I was writing the book, I, I, I came across an article about um, polyvagal theory. Um, now, we'd kind, of bit, we'd, we'd kind of touched on this a long time ago when somebody had spoken to us about movement therapy and rhythmic movement therapy. And the, the basic principle behind the idea of rhythmic movement therapy is that when we are born, we have um, a number of primeval reflexes, like the Mora reflex, that are designed to keep us safe. They're designed to to, to respond when something is painful, to um, to look in a particular direction, to look up at certain times, to roll over at certain times. All of those are primitive reflexes that are about physiological brain development. Now, if for some reason 
the, the, the aim normally is that those will integrate into normality as the child grows up. So we don't continue to have a strong moral reflex, a, a panic reflex when, when, we're, when we're pricked. Um, it's still there, but it's no longer uh, extreme. So they kind of get integrated as you grow up. If for some reason those don't get integrated, they can have all kinds of impacts on the physiological state of the body so that um, it, it retains a sense of um, danger in, in, in the entire system. You're continually in this sense of danger um, to the point where when we, we went and spoke to a guy who was a practitioner in rhythmic therapy, and he said that when he felt Leo's body, he could feel that his adrenal gland was overactive. He could feel it in all of his glandular areas that it was it was overactive. Now I don't I don't know the science behind this. I don't know the detail behind it. But what we did with Leo is a series of of literally rhythmic movements that were pushing and pulling, or that were causing his head to rock backwards and forwards and have different weights on it, that were um, flexing and moving different parts of his body that are designed to reintegrate the connections that should be happening neurally, should have happened neurally when he was a baby that for some reason haven't happened. And it's almost about reintegrating those. Um, I mean, there, there must be something to it because it would really calm him. It would really relax him. And we do them before bedtime every evening. And I think it made a big difference at the time to helping him feel physiologically comfortable with himself. But they even talk about it. You can go into um, business classes and, and business schools and they'll talk about rhythmic movements to reintegrate parts of the body and, and, and using one side of the body in one way and another side of the body in another way to integrate the brain connections because your brain is continually growing and it grows by physical movement. So actually using that physical movement to regrow connections in the brain Um it's a really, really complex area. It, it, it goes into spaces like cranial osteopathy as well and looking at how the plates of the, of the um, skull fuse as they're growing and the pressure that that can cause on brain development. So there's all kinds of really what you'd call weird and wacky things physiologically that seem to have some useful impact when you're working with children with autism and helping them physiologically manage their experience. Does that make any sense? Sounds a bit wacky. It does. Try to try saying that in a um, a Senko meeting, and and imagine the look that you get. We went straight on a parenting course after this. After that, after raising oh, that, you I need bet. a parenting course. Stop doing that wacky stuff. <laughs> but that's the thing is, I, it's one of those things you can sit there and go, I literally, I want, I want to see what impact that would have be on my nephew. And I'm going, I, all of it. I literally, right. So we've got to get him to change eating. Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> We've got to get him to go to someone, have someone handle him. No, That's we did not it at home. Happen. The guy taught us and we did it at home. And actually it was quite a nice bonding experience in the evening because it was it was it was like having a massage before you go to bed, except it's not a massage, it's him laying on his back on the floor and you pulling his feet backwards and forwards so that his head rocks. Oh, my nephew couldn't handle no. you touching his feet. Okay. So yeah. So it's one of the things you sit there, there's always things which help you, but it's like can't do it's it. It's like it's like when you have a really bad headache. Yeah. And the, you know there's a tablet on the bedside table. You can't take it. But you can't just get yourself to take it. Like, why are you not? Funnily you enough. feel better. A lot of the people that this guy was working with, um, you could do the movements when they were asleep and it would have the same effect. Now, we never even, like, if you've got a child with autism and they're asleep, you don't 
move. You don't whisper, you don't talk, you don't go in the room, you don't do anything because they're asleep. And I can't imagine many parents wanting to risk waking their child up. But but yeah, lots of lots of really good um, responses. And funny enough, there's some there's a lot of stuff around a, um, auditory doing auditory rhythm. So that actually it can it can stimulate some of the same changes by listening to particular auditory rhythms. And again, some of these theories, you will have fierce um, advocates and fierce people trying to debunk it. So who knows? But it's it's been really interesting exploring it. I'd, I'd be interested to find out uh, as a sort of a um, makeup of all the people who say it's great. <laughs> yeah. And then the makeup of all the people who say it's not great, <laughs> actually... Uh, percentage of them who have autism or are parents of people, children yeah. with autism. It'd be interesting to see yeah. that because that's the thing is some people just simply don't believe in neurodiversity. Yeah. Just think it is they're naughty. Yeah. They're just rebellious. Absolutely. They're just, you're a bad parent. And to say actually, and not that they literally have this, 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 this. And if you do this, this, and this with them, well, I don't need that. So why would they? Yeah. The the rhythmic movement one, the, the conversations around the rhythmic movement, a lot of the stuff that they, they started working in that space was around dyslexia, funnily enough, and school attendance um, and school performance. Because actually one of the one of the primitive I can't remember all the details of this, but one of the primitive reflexes is about head movement and and how um when you first do tummy time as a child, that looking up movement is dealing with a reflex integration and actually if kids don't have enough of that tummy time which Leo didn't have any he had no interest in going in his tummy at all it just literally just he'd just lay on the floor he wouldn't look up at all but actually if you've got children sitting in a classroom whose primary movement to look at a, a whiteboard or a blackboard in the old days was to move their head that physical action of moving their head if their reflexes weren't um, integrated effectively would actually be a, like a minor trauma in their system and create anxiety. Um, the, th the point this made sense for us is if you try and get Leo to swim with his head above the water, he can't do it because his head's up. The, his head is straining to keep his mouth above the water. If you give him a pair of um, goggles and tell him, actually, it's not important to keep your head above the water, he swims like a fish. Absolutely. He's under the water. He doesn't care. He's not bothered about anything. He swims naturally. Ask him to take the goggles off and keep his head and mouth above water. He flounders. Can't do it at all. And it's something about that movement of straining the neck to look upwards or straining the neck to look sideways at a blackboard that seems to trigger some of the, um, some of the symptoms that you'd see in dyslexia. So... Really odd stuff that uh, there's possibly science behind it. There's possibly not. It's we're into the areas of the brain that we don't understand as much. There's probably the science is they've observed it. It's a link. Didn't make sense, so just left it. Yeah. And that's as far as they've <laughs> yeah. got. It's, I've heard things of about you have the thing where you track objects as it goes past the center line. Yeah, yeah, that's that has it's an the impact. Same, same, same theory that that crossing the center line is is part of the integration of the of the sensory circuits. And the other one is I've heard is if a child doesn't crawl, then then less likely to put their hands out when they fall. Yes, and less likely to find it easy to engage in class. 
how that's connected, God only knows. But I'm, I'm a practitioner in neuro-linguistic programming, and I don't know if you've ever come across neuro-linguistic programming, but it's basically what it comes down to is that, that all of our experience is programmed in the brain, and it's programmed in a particular language, and we then treat that language as reality, and it isn't. It's still language, and, and you can interpret it in different ways. But when you're looking at the way the brain works in those spaces, um, we've done um, amazing activities where you can you can reaccess memories by using eye accessing cues. And if you look up, left, down, right, uh, if you look all the way around the visual field, it's almost like you're looking all the way around your memory field as well. And you'll find some memories are programmed visually. And if you switch them from visual memory to auditory memory, they're not as painful. You can you can get past them in a more functional way. Um, people with allergies who when you talk to them about their experience of allergy, it's like a massive flower in their visual field with pollen pouring out of it. And if you shrink that and you play around with it and give it a tune and change the colours, they don't experience pollen allergy anymore. And you're just like, hey, you can't process that. Doesn't make sense. How does that? But I've, I've literally seen it happen in front of me with people shifting their perspectives. I, I had a woman in one of our uh, training programs who wore glasses. She's always worn glasses, quite thick, bottle-bottom type glasses. And when we tracked that back through her memory, she has a vivid visual memory of being born. And she was born face up and was blinded by the hospital lights as she came out of the birth canal. And her visual system appears to have reacted to that and shrunk whatever its muscles that enable it to flex have seized to some degree and when we unplugged that memory and kind of explored it and changed it and adjusted it she never wore glasses again like literally didn't wear glasses again and you're like that doesn't make sense that's just psychobabble stuff but it makes you realize how psychological our experience is from a physiological perspective Thank you for saying that is all psycho babble because it is one of the Dale things. mind blown. Hearing it, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. But you, certain things you have to see, and there are certain things which cannot be changed. But there are going to be things which change, um, based on various things. So my my parents have drunk coffee for years, right? and, and they went to South Africa. The coffee was horrible, so they didn't drink coffee for three. So they came back, had a cup of coffee, and were both ill. Yeah. Can't handle caffeine. Yep. What changed? Yeah. That's the thing. Because so you can sit there and go, they've had it their entire yeah. life. There's an awful lot and of then suddenly, stuff that we don't understand. Anyway, coming to stuff that we don't understand, one of the things that I did want to talk, and I mentioned it earlier and then never went there, is the polyvagal theory. And there is actually yes, a thing yes. called the polyvagal podcast. So one of, one of the, the things that people might want to tune in to, it's basically, it comes from a background of trauma. So it's looking at people that have gone through some kind of childhood trauma, um, whether that's something that's happened to them, whether there's something that's done to them, or whether it's some kind of internal experience of trauma, like separation. Um, at an early age and essentially what the what the theory suggests is, is is the vagus nerve is the 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 main pathway that it that that regulates the autonomic autonomic nervous system and the automatic uh, automatic the autonomic nervous system um regulates things like heart breathing 
um, bowel function, urination, but it also is is incredibly important in things like fight, flight and freeze responses. So it's basically our, our emergency response system. Something in that early trauma affects the function of that fight, flight, freeze system such that it's on it's on a base. If you imagine it's either on or off in most people, it's on because it's triggered or it's off because it's not triggered. The baseline is higher in that it's always partially triggered in people who have experienced trauma. And that sense of it being partially triggered and partially on means that their whole physiological state is in defense. It's in a defense mode. It's in a it's in a careful, safe, um, control everything, manage everything, don't take risks, all of that kind of space. So the child who is experiencing that is in, is in effectively a constant state of mild trauma, um, which creates anxiety. And that uh, that sense means that they don't naturally engage in pro-social behavior, but they also don't recognize pro-social behavior as effectively. And they are continually scanning the environment for risk and threat. So if you raise your voice, it has a much bigger impact on a child who is in a defensive state than a child who is in a relaxed and safe and comfortable state. So you and actually you've only got to look at Leo when he is mildly uncomfortable and you can see he is in um, rabbit in a headlight state and anything you do will trigger him. And it takes a lot more effort with him than with my other son to get him back to a state of safe, comfortable. And when you're safe and comfortable, you're physiologically and psychologically open. So you can be honest, you can express your emotions, you can hear other people's emotions, you can explore the world around you because it's safe. If you don't feel that the world around you is safe, A, because it hasn't been in the past, and B, because your triggers are much more sensitive than others, you're not going to engage and you're not going to be pro-social and you're not going to eat the chicken nuggets that have got breadcrumbs on them and you're not going to do any of those things. But even more so, you're going to be more conscious of the dangers that might make that worse. So it's almost like what they're suggesting is that, that the autistic brain is in a state of mild shutdown at all times. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You think about it. It does make a lot of sense. I think about my nephew in this situation is he has gone through a traumatic experience and yeah, he struggles with lots of those things you've talked about. Really does. Um, and it's interesting. He will, they do like the uh, red, amber, green. Yeah. How are you feeling? Yeah. And he'll say, how are you feeling? Green. How are you feeling? Don't know. Yeah. And he doesn't recognize when he's in the orange or the red. Yeah. But he'll say, I don't know. And he'll get there. And it might be that there is nothing. But if he's always on alert, it's quite easy for him to go straight into that orange yeah. and red. Yeah. Much earlier than anyone yeah. else. Yeah. Leo, any time we're running up to a social experience, like a birthday party or an event or an outing or something like that, um, we have to manage that incredibly carefully in terms of when we tell him and what we tell him. Because his ramp up, will start the moment he has information. So by the time he's it by the time it's a month before his birthday or even two months before his birthday, he's already in a state of mild anxiety about what that might mean. And it's not nasty anxiety, it's excitement. But by the time he gets to his birthday, the anxiety's got or the excitement's got to a point where he can't actually manage it anymore. 
Um, it, it's just it's already too much, and we haven't even got guests arriving. Um, he's like the day before, he's still managing that sense of anxiety, and and it's like everything is on hyper alert all the time, which would explain why the guy was talking about his adrenal glands being overactive, that he's constantly in a state of mild adrenaline rush. And when we did, we did one of those parenting courses, I think it was the um, safe handling, is it safe handling or safe restraint type training? And one of the things they talked about is that when adrenaline is released into the system, for whatever reason, it takes four hours for it to get out of the system again, physiologically, that it's in the system. So if you've triggered him, even like by saying, would you like a cup of tea? Then it can take four hours for him to get his heart rate, his breathing, his gut function, everything back down to what we would consider normal. So you're already dealing with a hyper alert child. We, we did a podcast and Fintan O'Regan's scientists and, and, stuff, and he sort of says, basically, as soon as it sees that thing, it pumps you full of adrenaline. Yeah. It gets your gut ready. It gets your heart yep. ready. So you can run as fast Absolutely. as you possibly can and get away from it. And if you do run as fast as you can and get away from it, you'll use that adrenaline and life yes. is good. Problem is, it's all happened and you're still just sitting there. Yep. And it's got to go yeah. somewhere. Which would explain the sensory experience of wanting to run. So if you think right back to the conversation we had at the beginning about that sensation in your body that says, I, I can feel muscle tension. Why can I feel muscle tension? What something must be going on with my body. I need to do something with it. That muscle tension is coming from the triggers that are picking up potential danger in the environment from the voice tone of my teacher who's cross with somebody else. Leo will continually be triggered by me being cross with my younger son because it changes the dynamic in our house to the point where he doesn't feel as safe. And it's got nothing to do with him. I'm, I'm telling my youngest son that he needs to put his shoes on or he needs to do his homework or whatever. There's a lot of shoes in our house. Um, but, but he will then pick up on it and he will enter into a worse anxiety state than my youngest son, who's actually the subject of the situation. So that hypertension is something that I'd, I'd be interesting. I'd be interested to know if there are cardiovascular studies of autistic people and whether they are cardiovascularly stressed because their heart rate must be higher. And we actually have taught Leo when he's feeling something that he doesn't understand, put his hand on his chest and he'll be able to feel his heart rate. And that will be neurofeedback, if you like, that tells him whether he's stressed or not stressed whether he's excited or not excited. Because he can't feel it through the normal interceptive. He doesn't notice it necessarily but internally. But that is a way he can, he can consciously feel yeah. it that way rather than getting the signals yeah. as you typically yeah. would. And helping him to learn that if you breathe slowly, your heart rate will decrease and your body will relax slightly more so that you start to make him more physiologically aware of his emotional state. It's all mind-body stuff. And funnily enough, I work in an environment, my, my coaching business and my training business is around emotional intelligence and resilience and all of that stuff around um, seeing threats in the environment and responding to them and all of that kind of stuff. So it just got to the point where I was like, why am I not teaching my son this stuff? Because actually he needs to know how his own brain works because his brain is slightly more complicated and he needs a bigger manual. So maybe we need to start earlier with helping him talk about the old sort of 
red we do red brain blue brain so the red brain brain is the angry and excited brain the blue brain is the calm brain same as the upstairs brain and downstairs brain that they talk about with the the um explosive child and whole child stuff but teaching him that stuff has really helped him to understand what's going on inside himself and get a handle on it but they don't teach it in schools <laughs> no it's sort of thing is you only learn it when it's become such a big problem for yourself or when it's become a really big problem for your child. It's sort of thing, there's certain things around this um, that actually everyone should learn more of this at school and throughout their life because it will help everyone and it will have a huge positive impact. Um, no, I'm constantly no. amazed when I do business workshops on um, we do a we do an anagram activity um, and I literally just put impossible anagrams in front of them and um, and ask them to solve them. And afterwards, you'll see see them sitting there and I don't ask them about the anagrams at all. I say, what went through your head? What was the verbatim text, the little ticker tape that went through your head when I gave you that task? And you can hear one side people will be talking about, well, I'm rubbish at anagrams. I won't be able to do this. I always fail on countdown. And another person who's saying, oh, I love anagrams. It'd be really great. I'd be really excited. And you're like, it's that belief system that makes the difference between what you do and how you engage with the task. It's not whether the task is possible or not. It's whether you think the task is possible or not, whether you think you're capable or not, whether it's the right day or not in your belief systems. And teaching our kids about belief systems just seems to not really be on the curriculum i know they do phsa or whatever that's supposed to be but um it doesn't seem to teach that deep understanding of self no no they, they don't there's a few there's, a, there's new um relationships guidance coming out which has got um more in there which is good but it still doesn't go into because i think it's hard to teach how do you how do you teach someone how to deal with a stressful situation without making that stressful. <laughs> yeah, I have had people complain and said, you just, you just told us they were anagrams when they weren't. And you're like, okay, sue me later. But it's, it's for a point. But we teach children about growth mindsets. So we must be able to go into that kind of exploration. Um, and mild, mild stress like a quiz is a great opportunity to say to kids, okay, we're going to give you a quiz. Um, then we're, gonna, not, we're not going to talk to you about the answers to the quiz. We're going to talk to you about what you said to yourself about whether you'd be able to do the quiz or not. And, and that you have a choice on. And, and you can choose when you look in the mirror in the morning, do I look awful or do I look good? Problem is, is, uh, is um, when you're uh, a pupil in the classroom experience, you're getting to doing that test and you go, so how do you feel about this? Well, I can't do it. Why do you think that? Because you keep telling me I can't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. Isn't it, isn't it the little hands experiment? Um, there's a really old experiment in psycho, psychological history where um, they, they separated a class in two and they told one half of the class that they were brilliant and the other half of the class that they were rubbish and then watch what happened. And you can imagine what happened. I mean, the, the great class got really good and the bad class got really bad. But um, yeah, it's, it's a classical science, science experiment, psychology experiment, but we do it all the time. We do. It was, um, I was at a conference many years ago and they're talking about NFER research and they said like in the eighties or seventies, you'd often find a report in England where it would say your child is good at maths, but rubbish at English. You should spend more time on uh, maths because that's his area of strength. Yeah. 
In France, at the same time, there'll be a, your child is good at maths, but rubbish at English. Really should focus on English to get it up to the same level as his maths. Very different approaches. And I was, I was an 80s, I grew up in school in the 80s, and I was of the belief you were either logical, do the maths and <laughs> yeah. computing stuff, or you were the creative, you did English, you did art, you did music. You couldn't be both. And hearing this going, and I think it's one of those things, that little hand sort of thing is, I would always said I'm rubbish at English because I'm, I'm good at maths and I love logic. And it's probably a few things I've heard as an adult, which has made me go, no, I can be good at English. And I think as my children have grown up and they're doing their SAT, I've learned a lot. And, I, and there's things I've learned and I, and I apply it all. And um, um, as we discussed earlier, um, I wrote a blog post yesterday, six pages long in about three hours and uh, got Grammarly out, got my wife out to uh, go through it. I got a colleague out and uh, it wasn't bad. I didn't have to rewrite loads of it. It was all pretty good. It's like I'm getting better because partly I've gone, oh, I can do this. It's not yeah. I'm predestined to only do maths. I can do ever. And also um, did a podcast with Alison Knowles on why we are the way we are, which was these beliefs we create for ourselves do nothing more than limit us. Absolutely. And I, I think what's, um, what's really scary about them is that we create those beliefs probably by the age of five, and then we struggle to question them. Um, and they could be our own. They could be inherited. They're largely inherited from either family or social. but you go through life with them. My mum tells a wonderful story about the hat on the bed. Have you ever heard the hat on the bed story? There's a there's a um there's a a family and a woman comes in, the the mother comes in and somebody's left a hat on the end of the bed and she said, take that hat off the end of the bed. You should never leave a hat on the end of the bed. And the person goes, well, why not? And she said, don't speak to me about this. You don't leave a hat on the end of the bed. Take it off now. It's it's you just don't do it. And it got passed down when they actually explored, it was something to do with um, a, an incredibly um, distant relative who had left a hat on the end of the bed and made a wet spot on the end of the bed and it had created some flu something that the person had died. And it had gone all the way down through the family with this, you do not leave a hat on the end of the bed. But nobody knew why. It, it had lost the original reason, like years and years behind, but it still sat in the family is that's something you don't do we have a similar one in our house that i've now confronted which is you don't go to bed with wet hair um and i'm like why why not it's really hot outside i always go to bed with wet hair in the summer because it's a nice way of cooling down and my husband looked at me with disgust and shock and said no you should never go to bed with wet hair because it'll give you flu or colds or something and again it's something his you're just like where the hell did that come from and actually we program ourselves over the years without ever realizing what cack we've stuck in there and going back to your brain thing the brain needs the brain needs both it needs left hand stimulation it needs right hand stimulation and my mother was always very good at saying if i've been sitting doing maths or science or or any kind of technical homework and i looked knackered she'd say i want you to stop and i want you to play the piano for half an hour activate the other side of your brain, give that side of your brain a bit of a break and come back to it. And you'd always come back refreshed because it was just the other hemisphere working. But it'd be so good if we learned this in school. 
Yes, there's so much wisdom that we don't take into schools and a hell of a lot of totally unwise stuff that we do take into schools and we treat like the hat on the bed. We've always done it this way. Ofsted says we have to do it this way, so we'll keep doing it this way because that's what works. No, it doesn't. And what, what they Ofsted said took this way. Ofsted told me this 12 years ago, we have to do it this way, so I've stuck to it yeah, ever since. Yeah. And we got a bad Ofsted report for not doing it that way 17 years ago. And the joy of COVID, and I, there aren't many sentences that start with the joy of COVID, is that it's turned everything on its head. And I, I, my sister's a, a, a teacher in a middle school, and she said that the whole system is falling to pieces and being rethought, and TAs are doing odd things, and they can't get um, they can't get any kind of temporary staff, and half the teaching staff are off, and the kids are totally lost as to whether they're in school for a reason or not, and the classes are all messed up. And actually, it's an opportunity for us to rethink what school is supposed to deliver for our kids. And I I don't think um, a list of nine GCSEs that get you a job is necessarily what school's for. Because most of the time you don't want that job or that job doesn't exist anymore anyway, or you've invented a different job that never existed before and you haven't got the qualifications and you'll work it out as you go along, like us. <laughs> My my daughter's in year 11 and she's doing her GCSEs and we've chosen all the ones so we can have an e-baccalaureate. Yeah. Do you know what an e-baccalaureate is? I do. I have French friends that did baccalaureate. So, yes. I have no idea. And my daughter's going, do I have to do this? I'm going, I don't know. Apparently it's important. Yeah. But I don't know what it is. No one's told me. I don't think anyone cares, but apparently it's important. So you should do it because I don't know if it is important it, or you not. You might turn out to be retrospectively important. <laughs> Yes, another parent's going, do I need to do this? I went, I don't know, because there's a thing here, and a university says it's quite important. And I'm going, in what context? In what? I feel like well, I push my child down a route that I have no idea if this is actually going to go anywhere, I, or is it a dead I was end a and going to do nothing? Student. I was an absolute model student, and I got nine GCSEs, and then I decided that I would do French, German, and English at A-level which bore no real interest for me in terms of a long-term job, but I was quite good at languages and somebody told me I should do French. Somebody told me I should do German. So I did. By the time I'd done two years of them, I had less interest in them at all. And I went and watched Silence of the Lambs. And I then applied to university to do criminology and psychology. Um, I then came out of doing criminology and psychology and got a job in a pub and ran a pub for a while. And I then, <laughs> I then, one of my mates got a job in London as a management consultant. And I said, that sounds quite interesting. And I got a job as a management consultant. And then I left that job and I'm doing similar stuff, but I've also written a book on autism and uh, occasionally I run a pizza van. So frankly, all those nine GCSEs that I worked really hard to get, I'm not entirely sure have really directed my life much. They might have given me more choices, but I, I'm not convinced. Yeah, I think having certain GCSEs opens you up and you have to get maths and you have to get English. I personally think doing computing makes a lot of sense. Um, but after that, yeah. But the problem is that worked for me, but I don't know where my daughter's going. I don't know what my daughter thinks. Um, it's just so – I don't know if you see, but yeah. 
But actually, and you see this, I wish my school had taught me about taxes. I wish yeah. my school had taught me about well, this. You see all these things. My husband's a bit of a, like, bit of a rule breaker in that space. And he's, he's closely connected with some guy who set up a very different kind of school who focus on things like how to do your taxes, um, how to um, how to navigate a an airport, how to real practical skills, and and actually an awful lot of the joy of homeschooling. If you talk to people who are homeschooling their kids, is that that's the kind of thing that you can teach them. You can teach them applied practical stuff. We were we were looking at doing world schooling, and and saying okay, right, you're in charge of working out how we book this flight and get us through an airport. There's a hell of a lot of practical skills, research skills, English skills, negotiation skills that you're learning in that practical moment. And I know you say you've got to get maths, you've got to get English. You've only got to get those because society requires them. My my brother-in-law is the director of operations at a port. He does not have GCSE maths. He failed GCSE maths. It It's something you and our definition of maths is things like algebra and quadratics and like that's not the kind of maths that anybody but an engineer needs to know and and most of our kids are not not going down the engineering route be great if they did because the country could do with them but so our, our definition of school subjects is artificially separated so maths is one subject, science is another subject, English is another subject. That's poppycock. They're all connected and they're not practically applied. I I personally think best thing we could do is a bit much bigger shift to project-based learning because that's what you do in the real life. You don't spend an hour doing geography in your work. You don't spend an hour doing English. You do it all together. Um, but it's hard to judge. And I think uh, Lord Baker wrote a book um, all about the education system. All the subjects were devised um, in the Victorian era, and we've stuck with them. Uh, the school age change from primary to secondary was just picked at random. There was no reason for it to change, and it actually makes the least sense then. And various other things, and it was like, why are we still living with this? Now, I'd love to say that COVID will make a change, and we will have some changes, but... Inertia. All the people in charge are of an older generation who don't understand technology, don't understand the way the world's going, and will go, well, it was good enough for me. And don't understand children. That's the thing that scares me. They fundamentally don't understand children anymore. They don't understand that children are different. They learn differently. They grow differently. And let's face it, we've just been talking about their, their physiologically, their brains work differently. They've, they've got fast um, hand-eye coordination because they spend lots of time on video games. They've got their attention spans are less because they they their sense of communication is instant. So we're teaching them in a way that even their brains aren't designed for. Let alone their bodies, who are filled with adrenaline and need to move. I'm I'm. I'm really lucky and I, I, I don't often recognise how lucky I am to have a child who is in a school that allows him to do maths verbally and to do English sitting in a tree. And, and that's wonderful. And if that doesn't equip him for the rest of his life being an engineer or a lawyer, then so be it. I'm sure that he'll suddenly decide that he wants to do law and retrospectively learn it when he's got the maturity. But at the moment, he needs to move. That's the thing is, I, I sit there, I write documents in hotel airports. 
airports. I write documents in um, hotel airports, in hotels and airports. Um, I sit there and I write stuff wherever I am. So the fact he can do uh, English in a tree, that's preparing him more for the world. And rather than having a sterile environment where everything is silent, you have to sit here, is actually he can concentrate and do the stuff wherever he is. Yeah. Funnily enough, I remember when I did my psychology degree, they they told us a really interesting fact that if you learn, um, if you learn a whole load of facts underwater while scuba diving, it is physiologically easier to recall them underwater while scuba diving than it is to recall them at the surface because memory is contextual. So we've got a whole load of kids whose contextual um, memory base is a, as you say, a sterile school where they all face the front. So that's going to equip them brilliantly for remote working, isn't it? Yes. So uh, before we go off on any yes, more tangents, indeed. I think we should wrap indeed. it up. So thank you for coming on the show today, Rachel. No problem. I've, Been fun. I have really enjoyed it. It is a fascination listening to it all, and I'm going to be emailing my sister and calling my sister about some of those <laughs> things as well. Um, she probably has heard of that. I go, have you heard about this? She's like, yeah, I've been doing it for years. I was like, oh. <laughs> um, so I'll find out from that. Um, and you've provided me with a couple of useful links, which I'll add to the show notes along with your contact cool. details. And you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to the podcast, or you can find them on the website, which is www.thesendcast.com. As always, thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website. And please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. And on Facebook and Instagram, we are The Sendcast. And please use social media to share The Sendcast with others. Let them know which is your favourite episode or where you listen to it, etc. And before you go, I'd like to remind you to check out what we do here at B-Squared. As well as this podcast, we have our online CPD platform, Training for Education. And you'll find a number of guests on the podcast, our speakers at our virtual SEND conferences. And Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And lastly, don't forget our assessment product. This is what B-Squared is famous for. It's what everyone knows us for, helping schools show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We cover a huge range from early years to post-16 preparing for adulthood, and we also have a tool to help profile autism. So again, not every child with autism is the same. They are all unique, and they would have a different profile and different presentation. So visit www.bsquared.co.uk for more information on how we can help yours. So thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode of the Sendcast soon. So goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you very much, Dale. You're welcome. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.